0: So last week we had a guest speaker, a friend of mine named Matt Randall's, and you may recall it was a great sermon. His, his title was, I Saw the Sign. Now if any of you were kind of alive in the 90s, was it just driving you nuts that he never made a reference to Ace of Base? Like I, I just expected him to bust out with I Saw the Sign and it opened up my mind and the Lord. No. I just want to say that if you looked at the sermon title tonight and you saw Enigma of Grace, I just want to cut you off with the past, there will be no reference to the the 90s uh, German New Age band Enigma. There will be no references to Gregorian chants, uh, nor heavy breathing and electronic noises in the background. Okay. Actually, I just picked that word Enigma uh, because of what it actually means. uh, uh, It's a noun, meaning a person or thing that is mysterious, puzzling, or difficult to understand. And after we get into tonight's sermon text, you might also define Enigma as a person or thing that is A person thing or a scripture verse in the bible that is mysterious or difficult to understand now i have to admit that this is one of those texts that in places is just plain weird volumes of scholarly journals have been written on this verse that we're going to look at tonight and i'm sure leaders of ink proverbially have been spilled over the meaning of this scripture that's somewhat of an enigma It's definitely one of those passages that I would have chosen to skip over if we weren't, as a church, committed to preaching through books of the Bible. But because we are, and because I sometimes question that, uh, anyway, because we've done the work, uh, I actually think that God is going to to bless us for going through this tonight, because I I think it speaks to a a greater depth of understanding who God is, and we get to see uh, some amazing grace. So, It's going to get weirder before it gets better, so we might as well just dive right in. Please stand with me as we read Exodus chapter 4, verses 18 through 31. It goes like this. Then Moses departed and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go, that I may return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see if they're still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. Now, The Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and mounted them on a donkey and returned to the land of Egypt. Moses also took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Well, then you're to say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, let my people go, my son go, that he may serve me. But you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Now it came about in the lodging place on the way that the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and threw it at Moses' feet and said, You are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. And at that time she said, You are a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Now the Lord said to Aaron, Go to meet Moses in the wilderness. So he went to meet him at the mountain of God and kissed him. Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him, and all the signs which he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of the sons of Israel, and Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. He performed all the signs in sight of the people, so the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about the sons of Israel, and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed low and worshipped. Lord, help us. We know that that you gave us your word to reveal yourself and your character to us. Uh, We know that we are millennia removed from the cultural context. Um, And Lord, this is weird to us. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open our minds, our hearts to receive what it is you have for us. Help us to be open to your voice. Amen. You may be seated so i know i I opened the message with all this talk about enigma but in reality when you read through that passage a good two-thirds of it are actually pretty normal like actually good news and and fairly straightforward in the verses leading up to our text tonight god had already approached moses in the burning bush and there he tells moses that he had seen the uh, affliction of the people of israel as they were oppressed in slavery in egypt and then he tells moses i'm going to send you to go get my people out of slavery and moses of course responds with a whole list of reasons why he should not be the one that god sends it probably stemmed back from the time when moses as a younger man was in egypt and he intervened in a situation where he he tried to rescue an israelite brother the Israelites, his own people, rejected him. And that was the last memory Moses had of being in Egypt. Well, in any event, God listens to every one of Moses's concerns and meets meets each one of those concerns with encouragement and support. And to convince the Israelite elders, he gives Moses power to do three signs. One is that his staff can turn into a snake. The other one is this weird like hand trick where he sticks in his cloak and it says in his bosom, and it comes out, and it's leprous, and then he sticks it back, and it's all better, so that's the second sign, and then the third sign is that he can dip into the Nile River and make the water. When he pours it out onto the land, it turns into blood. Now, finally, when Moses complains, even after those three signs that he's just not a good communicator, God says in a little bit of an angry voice, I, I assume, uh, he's going to send Aaron, Moses' brother, to do the talking, all right? there it is tonight we pick up the story where Moses is leaving the burning bush and he goes back to Midian to make things right with his father-in-law Jethro now he does this out of respect for Jethro since when when Moses was a fugitive Jethro not only gave him shelter and a job he made him part of his own family gave him a daughter and through that relationship Moses has had a couple of boys the text says that Moses goes to Jethro and says, please let me go that I may return to my brethren who are in Egypt, just to see if they're still alive. Now, on the surface, this is really strange because, of course, God told Moses to go back to Egypt and to let the people go and to release them from the captivity. He didn't say, just go see if they're alive. So what is Moses doing here? Is he lying? Is he just telling a half-truth? No. First of all, this is a courteous way of saying, I'm leaving. Can I have your blessing to leave? By saying he's going to check in with his brethren, the Israelites, Jethro would have understood Moses to be associating himself with another people, with the Hebrew people. And he's doing that without any disrespect to Jethro or the Midianites. Second, this is just a beautiful piece of narration. You may have noticed it already, but if you want to do your homework later on, check out the verbal links with Exodus 2. In Exodus 2, Moses goes out to check on his brethren, and it was the last thing he ever did in Egypt. His leadership was rejected, and yet here, he's going to give it another go. He's telling Jethro, I'm going back to Egypt to see if my brethren are still alive. Moses is returning to the place of his greatest failure. Isn't that a difficult thing to do? And here lies the first piece of good news in this passage. Moses is not a hero. He's not courageous in the sense of overcoming his own failures. In fact, he tried to talk God out of sending him. The reason that Moses is going is simple. This time, he knows he's going with God. So Moses heads out with his wife and his two sons, Gershom and Eleazar, his donkey and his staff. And I think the fact that God gives Moses a staff is brilliant. It's like a physical thing that he can touch. And of course, the two other signs are physical as well. He can see his hand changing. He can see the water turning to blood. The signs, though, are just simply reminders that God is with them. They're actually not all that powerful, are they? These these three signs aren't going to overwhelm the Israelite elders. Um, I mean, there's way cooler signs you could do if you wanted to convince them that, that God had sent him. Call fire down from the sky or something cool like that. Levitate cool rocks. I don't know. There's way cooler tricks I could think of. Think about it. You get to these Israelite elders and you do this weird leprosy trick like it's like a gross parlor trick. They're probably just like, dude, put that hand away. Make it go normal again. Like, it's not, I don't know, it's not all that impressive. And nowhere does it say, like, throw your staff down. It'll turn into a multi-headed snake with lasers shooting out of its eyes. Like, it's not exactly going to strike fear in the heart of Pharaoh. It doesn't even say that the snake is particularly poisonous or anything. It just turns into a snake. And comes back. The staff, the signs, they're not magic powers that Moses is going to draw confidence from. He draws confidence from the fact that God's presence is with him. And I imagine, and this is just totally me, that as Moses heads out from Midian to Egypt, you know, it's multi, many days journey. And I imagine maybe at night, as the fire is dimming down, and maybe Zipporah and the boys are asleep in the tent, you know, Moses is around the fire like, did I make the right thing? Did I really hear God right? And if I were him, I'd be doing a little bit of this just to see if it works still. Like, okay, he's with me. Got it. Physical reminder. I can do the hand thing still but it's true that God gives Moses these reminders. Reminders are often the things in our lives that can help us push through a new threshold. And reminders come in all shapes and sizes, forms and mediums. Moses had physical reminders of his staff and the other signs. Just like the ring on my finger reminds me of Corey's fidelity and my commitment to her. We have... For example, the Christ candle lit up here in the front of the the sanctuary. It's a reminder. It's not magical, but it reminds us that God's presence is with us. And we have other physical reminders, the bread and the wine, which remind us that we are with, we commune with the risen and reigning Jesus. We're part of the family of God. We have non-physical reminders we have that book, which is physical, but what that book represents, the Bible represents, is the story of God, the story that shapes us, that reminds us of His faithfulness throughout all generations. Some of those non physical reminders are the encouragement that we receive from each other, communing with the body of Christ. Maybe Jesus is calling you to something new, something challenging, something scary. What are some of the reminders that you could fall back on that could remind you that Jesus is with you, that he indeed called you? Sometimes doing something new or dangerous is actually appealing to some of us. Sometimes in your situation, what might be more difficult is to remain doing the thing that God has already called you to do. Maybe what you need is is help, having a long obedience in the same direction as Eugene Peterson likes to say. Where has God been faithful to you in the past? He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He's faithful, and he equips each person that he calls. Well, we're at the point in the story now where we get to the weird stuff, the enigma. But what's interesting, let me just just humor me for a moment. What's interesting is that if you skip the weird verses, not that anyone would actually do that, uh, but if you skip the weird verses and just jump right back to to uh, verse 27 it's actually a really nice story like you think of it in in a film you've got moses and he takes his wife and kids and he's got his staff and he started he's obedient to god he starts heading down to egypt and maybe i don't know josh what would you do in film like you maybe have a have a fade or something like that and then cut edit to now jump to aaron Because God said that Aaron would come up and and would speak for Moses. So now you get this great story, this edit, this cutaway. And Aaron now is heading up from Egypt to meet with Moses. And we have no idea, of course, how Aaron knew to do this. But if God could speak to Moses in a burning bush, I'm sure he can get his point across to Aaron. Aaron. So anyhow, Aaron knows this, he, he meets with Moses, he kisses his long lost brother, I don't know how they even recognize each other, maybe there's some family resemblance, a lot of stuff we don't know, but they meet up at the mount of God, Mount Horeb, and everything goes really well, and then, okay, well let's go to the elders of Israel, so they go down, they do their three tricks, and the elders, oh we love it, yes we believe, and you're saying that God has seen our affliction, and they worship him, now isn't that a great story, Isn't that kind of how we want things to go? You you see Moses being afraid, and then Moses stepping out in obedience, and then everything just works out smoothly. And I think sometimes we think we want that, but there's part of us that rejects a narrative like that, isn't there? It's a little too clean. It's a little too neat. My life, at least, and I'm guessing yours, too, doesn't really work that way. It's just not that simple. What this story needs is something more realistic, a twist, something that's not so neat and tidy, and yet something that rings true. And before we skip to that section, I want to point out what I think is the overriding truth of this whole passage. In a minute, we're going to get to these weird enigma parts of the chapter, but I want us to read them through a particular lens, and the lens is verse 31-31. Of chapter 4 it's the last verse in the chapter we're in and here's how it goes so the people believed and when they heard that the lord was concerned about the sons of israel that he had seen their affliction then they bowed and worshiped whatever we encounter next remember that the story ends with the statement of the lord's love for his people such love that it causes them to bow down and worship All right, you ready? The enigma, actually, there's two. I know, I just multiplied on you. Two enigmas. The first one involves the Lord telling Moses, go to Pharaoh and show him the signs, the staff and the hand trick and the blood trick. Tell him, let my people go. And now here's the enigma. God out of this side of his mouth says, let my people go. God out of this side of his mouth says, but I will harden his heart so he won't let the people go. What do you want here, God? Okay, Raises all kinds of problems, doesn't it? Not least, does God manipulate our minds, or don't we have free will? Some obvious statements before we dive into this enigma. First, if these issues were easy to solve, they wouldn't be enigmas in the first place. Like, this is weird stuff. Second, we don't base theological doctrine on scriptures that we can't fully understand, okay? So no, we should not jump to base a theological doctrine about who God is by this one weird verse. So how do we approach a text like this? Of course, you know what I'm going to say if you've been at letter streets a while. Context, right? We start with context. In Exodus 3, the previous chapter, we learn that Pharaoh is going to harden his heart. In Exodus 7, 13, in Exodus 7, 14, in Exodus 7:22, Pharaoh strongly rebels against God and Moses out of his own initiative. In Exodus 8.12 and Exodus 8.32, Pharaoh strengthens his resolve to resist God's command to let the Israelites go. So it seems clear from those scriptures that Pharaoh is set against the Israelites, and he's set against their God. He's doing a good job of that by himself. But we still have to wrestle with the verse that we're looking at tonight and Exodus 9.12, where God hardens Pharaoh's heart even further so that his rebellion is stronger. God seems to make Pharaoh stubborn, and there's no getting around that. So which is it? Who hardens Pharaoh's heart? Is it Pharaoh or is it God? Yes. Yes. Now right now, we're not asking the philosophical question of determinism and free will. Those categories as important as they are in other realms uh, of study and life, those categories are foreign to the Bible. The Bible doesn't ask those kinds of questions. So what we have to do is take the story as it actually exists. And this is a story that from the earliest centuries of Judaism and then Christianity was seen as scripture, the word of God. Like people weren't dumb until like we were born. I mean, they people had problems with this stuff too, but they still accepted this tension. These stories had centuries, millennia, of opportunity to be sanitized. If people didn't really like this stuff, they could have kind of worked it out, but they were not sanitized. They were not bent to make make God more logical or more friendly. They stand with all their tensions intact. Now, how do people in the Bible respond to the sovereignty of God like this? I think of Job, who... Definitely came up against this weird sovereignty of God, able to do whatever he wants, when he wants. And you know what it did to Job? It caused him to be a man full of humility. And he worshipped God. It led Job to his knees. And for the Apostle Paul, who tried to communicate this to so many people, but especially in the book of Romans... He simply declared, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom of the knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments! How unfathomable His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become His counselor? Or who has first given to Him that it might be paid back to Him again? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen." Paul was a smart guy. He was steeped in philosophy, and theology, and biblical studies. And when he couldn't get his mind around God, it didn't send him to despair or cynicism. It sent him to praise. It made him say, this God is bigger than I can wrap my very capable mind around. So in one sense, this episode reveals just how other God is. We can't box him up. We can't contain him in a theology book. He's not a tame God, right? The second observation is that this episode is meant to encourage Moses, and I know that sounds weird, but next week when we get into chapter 5 of Exodus, we're going to see Moses and the Israelite elders go up to Pharaoh, and he's going to reject them. In fact, he's going to make things harder on Israel than they currently are, and it will seem to Moses that his mission failed, but then we will remember this verse that we're looking at tonight, and we will know That it's all according to God's plan. And Moses will know that it's all according to God's plan. You know, in the ancient Egyptian world, the heart was seen as the center of one's essence. And it was believed in Egyptian mythology that when you died, the gods of the underworld would take your heart and put it on a literal scale. And if it was heavy with sin and and corruption, you would go to a place like hell. And if it was light with purity and tipped the scale the other direction, you would go to a place called paradise. And it was believed in this Egyptian mythology that none was pure than Pharaoh himself who was actually seen and, and, and called a son of God. And yet here, Moses is saying, or God is saying to Moses that in times of trial, remember that I am God over every human heart, even Pharaoh's. And there's more. The fact that God can do what he wants when he wants is a bit discomforting. And that's part of the point. And yet there's good news in this. The message here is that God always works for the good of his people. He might not be tameable. In fact, one might even say he's dangerous, but he's good through and through. In biblical context, Moses probably found great comfort in the fact that God was going to harden Pharaoh's heart. Does that sound strange? Why would Moses take comfort in that? Here's why because it is a fulfillment of the promise that god made to abraham in genesis chapter 12 In genesis 12, he chooses abraham and sarah to be the parents of what would become the nation of israel He promised to bless them so that they would be a blessing to the world and he said to abraham If anyone curses you I will curse them. I will be their adversary if they're adversarial to you. Now, I think that Pharaoh's enslavement of Israel, killing of their firstborn male children, and general disdain of Hebrews qualifies for cursing them, wouldn't you say? So in a very real sense, God is being faithful by cursing Israel's enemies through their leader, Pharaoh. Now, here's the important thing. I do not think that God reprogrammed Pharaoh to do something he didn't want to do. If you've seen uh, Marvel's The Avengers, and even if you haven't, there's this villain named Loki. Yeah, I'm a nerd. Anyway, he has this staff, and if Loki touches you in the heart with this staff, your eyes glaze over, and you're like, you're not yourself anymore. Like, you're a complete zombie to do the bidding of Loki. Like, you completely lose your will, right? And that is not what's happening here. That's not how God works. It's, It's not like Pharaoh was going to be, You know, I've been thinking, I want to stop being a racist slave master. I declare that a systematic initiative of reintegration of the Hebrew people into normal Egyptian society, and in fact, I want to pay the Hebrews a living wage. And I'm going to stop calling myself son of God. That's not the direction that Pharaoh was already heading. So what God does here is to take Pharaoh's already warped mind, his already hard heart, and he strengthens it. In fact, the Hebrew behind that word for harden is actually, maybe more accurately translated, strengthened or encouraged. It's not a hardening, but a strengthening, what was already there. And that's actually a terrifying prospect. We are constantly, every one of us, being formed in the image of God or deformed. We're never neutral. Okay? We're never neutral, even when we think we're. We're just watching TV while well, it's informing us. Are, are we being formed more towards the image of God or are being deformed? If God were to strengthen your heart and my heart in the direction it's heading right now, what would be the outcome? Would God's strengthening of your heart, as it is today, lead you toward more life, more beauty, more grace toward others? Would it lead you toward more worship, more joy, and more being a blessing to other people? Or would you be stuck on a road of deeper decay and deeper selfishness? Hold that thought. Our next enigma gets weirder before it gets better, but it does get better, so trust me. So, Moses is camping out in the wilderness He's called by God. He's obeying God. Look at me. I was scared, and now I'm doing it, and all of a sudden, God tries to kill him. I know. What do you, seriously, you try preparing for this sermon. It's just weird. (laughs) Like, isn't Moses doing the right thing, and now all of a sudden, God tries to kill him? Uh, Let me just make one thing clear. God doesn't try to kill Moses, okay? In one sense, God is like Yoda in that God does not he tries not. He does or does not. There is no try. Like, if God wants to kill Moses, he's gone, right? And I'm sure that God even has better grammar and syntax than Yoda, too. But we don't know exactly what happened to Moses, but many suspect that whatever judgment he was incurring made him gravely ill. He was so ill, in fact, that even when the right thing to do was to circumcise his son, he couldn't do it. Zipporah steps in and and circumcises the son. performs this procedure, and touches the bloody piece, you know, this is really graphic, um, to his feet, which is often a euphemism for his genitalia, so whatever, um, whatever the location that she touches this bloody thing for, the point is that the obedience of Zipporah and the blood atone for Moses's sin, and he's rescued. So weird, so weird, like, I don't know, I don't know what it means, and it's like, Lots of smarter people than me don't know what it means. And yet there's grace in this enigma. God's anger and his wrath are alleviated, detoned for through this obedience. Now, why would God be so angry that Moses didn't circumcise his kid right? Because the sign of circumcision was a sign that marked out the people of Israel. Israel was known As God's firstborn son and in that world the firstborn son had a special relationship with their father and they also had more honor and more responsibility in scripture Israel is God's firstborn son and Israel had special honor and responsibility to the rest of the world Israel was the object of God's favor and blessing and their enemies would be cursed But there were markers of who's actually in and who's out of Israel in this time. And circumcision was the most obvious marker. Moses could not very well lead the Israelites out of Egypt if his own family wasn't circumcised properly, if his own sons weren't marked out as having the special favor of God. So down Moses goes to Egypt. He and his family, securely part of Israel, now that they're circumcised, right? Part of God's firstborn son, his people, the object of his affection, the instrument of his blessing to the world, and yet this story ends up leaving us wanting for more. As it plays, spoiler alert, if you didn't already know, Israel, the firstborn son of God later on in the book of Egypt, continually rebels against God, resorts to idolatry, Moses, the mighty leader of Israel, later on in Exodus, Exodus, so sins against God that he's not even allowed to enter the promised land himself. If God were to strengthen the hearts of his firstborn son, Israel, would they be that much different than Pharaoh's? Would they be that much different than yours and mine? So what are we to do if even being marked out as a special people isn't enough? So the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about the sons of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, then they bowed and worshipped. The Lord was concerned about the sons of Israel. He saw that not even his own people could shoulder the responsibility of the firstborn status. He saw their affliction, and he completed their mission for them. He sent his son Jesus, his true firstborn, And in Jesus, in that one God-man, all of the promises, all of the duties of Israel were fulfilled. In Jesus, Israel was fully obedient. In Jesus, the good news was proclaimed. In Jesus, the widows and orphans were advocated for. Jesus embodied Israel. In Jesus, there's hope for the world, rescue from our own sickness of heart. Now there's no more boundary of circumcision. Amen. There's no fear in death. In Jesus' sovereignty, God is bent on rescuing people. That's his posture. He's bent on rescuing people. All who have faith in Jesus, Jews and Romans, Greeks and Turks, Americans, Iraqis, everyone. He's bent on rescuing. So brothers and sisters, hear the good news. In Jesus, we no longer need to have fear. He knew the state of our hearts when he went to the cross for us. God demonstrated his own love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He doesn't have to, you don't have to wait till you get it right to be in Christ. So the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord was concerned about the sons of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, then they bowed in worship. You know, we could have got there by skipping all those enigmas. But I wonder if I, at least for me personally, if I would have skipped through the hard things, I wouldn't have believed that this good news is for me. Because I know the depth of depravity of my own heart. I know the things that I think um, to myself. Sometimes they spill out and I'm embarrassed about those things. And if I if I read a story and it's too good to be true, then I always think it's for somebody else and not me. But because we're taken through these difficult passages, weird things, you know that that Christ, his atoning sacrifice is good even for me and even for you. In the messiness, in the ugliness of life, God's love triumphs in Christ. And in the end, I can't help think of jonas's dedication earlier on tommy and morgan what they want as parents more than anything is that jonas would know how deeply loved he is by christ and it strikes me as significant that the message of this passage is that the father wants you to know the exact same thing would you pray with me jesus you love us this we know for the bible your word Even the parts that present enigmas tell us so. Little ones like us to you belong. We are weak and broken. But we hang our hopes on you, for you are strong. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us. Let it sink deep in our hearts.